Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So this is an action-packed week in the Republican presidential primary for 2024. We've had at least one formal presidential campaign announcement that coming from Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. I have a sneaking suspicion that we may have another campaign announcement to come later this week. We'll have to see about that. I certainly think that another one is coming rather soon. Pretty imminent at this point. All signs pointing towards that. But we're going to want to dive into that. We're going to to want to go candidate by candidate, maybe even a little state by state action here. What should those of us on the new right, so to speak, the more nationalist, populist oriented wings of the conservative base right now, the so-called America First movement or the logical inheritors of that movement? Those of us who are sympathetic to all that, what should we be looking for? What are what should we be hoping for? We haven't really done a full kind of 2024 themed podcast episode for you in a few months now. We had one around President's Day back in February, kind of focusing a lot on on Nikki Haley, who had just announced her candidacy. So go ahead and flip back to that if you want kind of an in-depth look at Nikki Haley's candidacy. If God forbid you should want to go there, but uh, we can talk about her a little bit today as well here. But before we kind of get into the 2024 stuff, I want to just put a coda on our conversation from last week, which at least at the beginning of our conversation last week, before we brought on the great Kurt Schlichter of townhall.com, we had talked about an assault, an assault on yours truly from syndicated radio host Mark Levin, the so-called great one who hosts his Sunday night show on Fox News, been a longtime syndicated radio host. And we're not going to play that clip for you again. We played it last time, but in, in seemingly a 60 to 90 second span or so, Mark Levin called me a pseudo conservative, a fraud and pathetic for having had the temerity to support the merry band of skeptics for Kevin McCarthy's many, many ballots that it took him to ultimately secure the House Speaker nod back in Congress in early January. It it was very peculiar. I kind of responded last week on this show. I I pointed out the the, the obvious, the glaring follies of, of Mark's logic, which is something that he's been saying on his show for months now. He feels very defensive about the stance that he took. And I responded on this show. I explained that Mark Levin is one of the kind of quintessential boomer cons, which is a term, to be honest with you, I can't recall that if I came up with or I borrowed it from someone else, it's a term that I very much like. Nonetheless, it refers to a boomer conservative. You know, another term for this would be zombie Reaganite, someone who is really of a certain age, of a certain milieu, oftentimes a certain social and cultural milieu who kind of came up through the movement in a certain era who has conflated various principles with ad hoc public policies. And you know how it goes when it comes to the foreign policy, doctrinaire, free market fundamentalism on on the domestic level and things like that. So we're not going to kind of rehash all of that, but the update that I wanted to provide to you. So we released that podcast last week and was either the evening of that podcast or the day after that, that Mark Levin on his radio show didn't kind of call me up by name again, but he had a somewhat implicit rebuke where, where he couldn't let go yet again the Kevin McCarthy stuff, and he yet again called on those of us who criticized McCarthy from the right, from the right, and supported the merry band of House Freedom Caucus detractors, folks like Chip Roy, folks like Scott Perry, Andy Biggs in Arizona, folks like that. He kind of called us out again, and you know, eventually, I, I kind of just had enough to be honest with you. I mean, I mean, what is this very womanish kind of beta? behavior, right? So I I took the Twitter last Friday and I tagged Mark in a tweet and I tweeted the following. I said, at Mark Levin show. So Mark Levin has taken some shots at me recently. So how about this? Instead of cheap drive-by smears, let's have a debate. We can do it right here in Florida. I even have a, a proposed title. BoomerCon versus NatCon, a battle for the soul of the right. What say you, Mark? 
So I gotta be honest with you, I was pretty proud of that title, BoomerCon versus NatCon, a battle for the soul of the right. I thought it was cheeky, but nonetheless kind of underscores the real generational divide that folks like my friend Steve Dace in Iowa have been talking about on his Blaze TV podcast as well. So, you know, it didn't take a whole lot of time, actually, for Mark's producer, Rich Cementa, to respond. So really just a couple hours later on Twitter, again, this was last Friday. So Rich, uh, who goes by Mr. Producer on Twitter, because that's what Mark calls on his radio show. So Rich quote tweeted my tweet and he said, hi, Josh, I'm Mark's producer. Come on the radio show tonight at 820 Eastern time to debate. Why wait? It will be a much bigger audience on radio. I'll contact you by phone as well. So good for them for responding to my challenge. The slight odd twist here is that, as I mentioned, this was on Friday and it's a little odd for a Jew. That would be Mark Levin. Uh, I do not believe his producer, Rich, is Jewish, but it would be a little odd for his boss, Mark, who is Jewish, to publicly invite a fellow Jew, that would be myself, to come desecrate the Sabbath with him, which I guess Mark does every Friday because he seems to broadcast his show every Friday evening, and that's his prerogative. I mean, he's obviously not a very religious guy. That's totally his prerogative, but very weird optics, to be honest with you. So anyway, I took them up on on their offer, obviously did not go on to publicly desecrate the Sabbath with Mark Levin, but I did take them up on their offer. So I'm going on this week, this Wednesday at 8.20 p.m. So that would be tomorrow evening at around 8.20 p.m. Eastern time. Go ahead and please tune in. I, I sincerely hope that this stays focused on the issues. I can't imagine that they would have invited me on the program if they intended to take it into kind of ad hominem gutter mudslinging, the likes of which Mark called me out on his show a couple weeks ago, pathetic fraud, all this stuff. So I hope that we can keep it substantive. I hope that we can have a real meaningful debate on the new right versus kind of the older boomer con zombie Reaganite guard of which Mark is a card carrying member. So we'll see. We'll see. But for your purposes, I hope that you tune in to the Mark Levin show tomorrow evening. That it would be Wednesday, May 24th at 8.20 p.m. Eastern time for what I sincerely hope will be a cordial, respectful and substantive debate between yours truly and the so-called great one, Mark Levin. So go ahead and tune into the program tomorrow night. OK, so with that housekeeping out of the way, let's tune to the topic of the week, which are updates in the Republican presidential primary for 2024. So on Monday, that'll be yesterday, Tim Scott of South Carolina has come out running. This is not a particularly new stance. Tim Scott had his exploratory committee that he had publicly formed. He had this very swanky launch video for his exploratory committee. And Tim Scott is out there. So Tim Scott is now formally running for the nomination. It's worth saying a few words about Tim Scott then, I am not a particularly huge fan of Tim Scott. I mean, the man strikes me as fundamentally mediocre at best. I think he is somewhat of a professional mediocrity. You know, Tim Scott, I he's running heavily on his, on his bio. Now, look, you obviously cannot overlook the symbolism here, okay? Tim Scott is, he announced his campaign from his alma mater in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina, of course, was the place where the Civil War literally started in 1861. As an aside, for those of you who have never visited Charleston, you really should go ahead and do so. Not only is it a beautiful, small, uh, mid-size would be an overstatement, it's a beautiful, small city, but for history buffs like myself, you really have to go ahead and just relish it. I mean, I, I man, visiting Fort Sumter, where those first shots in the Civil War were fired in 1861, really kind of sent chills up my spine. So. You know, it's true. You really cannot ignore the symbolism here of, of a black man from South Carolina announcing his bid for the presidency in Charleston. His, as Tim Scott is fond of noting, his his grandfather dropped out of school in the third grade, became a cotton picker. And then here he is in Congress. He's worked his way up from the House to the Senate, and now he's running for president. But here is the unfortunate reality about Tim Scott. The unfortunate reality about Tim Scott is that he's basically just a bumper sticker running for president at this point. I mean, I mean, uh, my my mind reels thinking of the meaningful accomplishments or lack thereof that he has accomplished. I, I mean, really, I mean, I mean, what are the primary things that Tim Scott has has accomplished as, as a legislator? 
I, I mean, he really, and we're going to get to some other candidates, but he really has a heck of a lot in common with folks like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley. He is running as as a nice, a quote-unquote nice religious candidate. And uh, to be cl- very clear here, we, we support religious candidates. I think that's great. But it can be a problem when you let this kind of nice guy persona, this kind of 1980s moral majority style kind of nostalgia take over your entire campaign. So I'll put it to you this way. So over this past weekend, I saw a tweet where Tim Scott tweeted, and this was from his political account, the at vote Tim Scott account. He tweeted, quote, if you are able-bodied, you work. If you take out a loan, you pay it back. If you commit a violent crime, you go to jail. We have, all caps, we have to start teaching the necessity of individual responsibility. So look, to be clear here, I obviously agree with Tim Scott on what he is saying. True. If you are able-bodied, then you have to work in order to get SNAP benefits or welfare. It's a very reasonable position that's currently being hashed out right now as part of the debt ceiling negotiations between Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and so forth. But we'll see. The American people are on Republican side on that issue when it comes to work for welfare. If you take out a loan, you pay it back. Again, really no particularly compelling issue there. You know, when it comes to uh, maybe, maybe certain types of ad hoc bailout policies, I mean, we can kind of assess that in a time, place and manner or format. But as a general rule, that's obviously right. If you commit a violent crime, you go to jail. Well, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I'm not sure that Tim Scott has always agreed with that. He's kind of flirted at times with Democrats when it comes to so-called police reform, when it comes to criminal justice reform. But generally speaking, yes, if you commit a violent crime, you obviously go to jail. Here is the problem. The problem is that this is just boomer bumper sticker sloganeering. So, you know, I kind of snarkily quote tweeted that and I said, quote, I propose a new term for this kind of zombie Reaganite boomer con catnip political messaging. American dreamism. And some people kind of push back on this tweet of mine. Some people obviously got it, but some people were like, oh, what what part of that do you disagree with? Um, that sounds like basic conservatism to me. That's the way that I learned conservatism back in my dorky eye pencil roundtable seminar. No, look, again, I don't disagree with any of these policies here. Rather, it is choosing to launch a campaign based around these somewhat vapid aspirational bumper sticker peons. I mean, are we talking here about launching a national campaign amidst the dire straits this country faces based on the fact that your grandfather dropped out of school in third grade to pick cotton and now you're running for president and because you just basically believe in individual responsibility? I mean, I'm sorry, but to use a recurring leitmotif on this podcast Uh, This is not at all evincing or even remotely indicative of of understanding what time it is in America. No, the time in America is for real, concrete, hard-hitting solutions that take the fight to the woke left with no apologies whatsoever, not trying to simply turn back the clock to a bygone era of either real or perceived individual responsibility or individual liberty or blah, blah, blah from 30, 40 years ago. No, it is dealing with the muddled, muddled mess that is the present and using crass political power within the confines of the rule of law and within the confines of the great virtue of prudence to fight back against our hegemonic interlocutors on the other side of the aisle and then actually winning the argument and rewarding friends and punishing enemies, again, within the confines of the rule of law and within the confines of the virtue of prudence. So I saw nothing in that tweet whatsoever. I've seen nothing whatsoever about Tim Scott at all to events that he has any idea of knowing what time it is. Seems like a nice enough guy, I guess. Emphasis on I guess, because as I tweeted out yesterday on Monday after Tim Scott formally announced his presidency for 2024, It's actually not that obvious. Everyone sees Tim Scott and they're like, oh, he's so nice. He speaks well. He loves talking about his compelling biographical story, his grandfather, this, this, that. Does the name Ryan Bounds mean anything to you guys? Ryan Bounds. Well, I would submit to you that if you don't remember who Ryan Bounds is, you should go ahead and Google it. You see, Ryan Bounds 
was a Trump-era nominee to the Ninth Circuit, which for decades has been a bugaboo of American conservatives. It has been a bugaboo of legal judicial conservatives because it is a sprawling judicial court headquartered in San Francisco, but it has a massive geographic footprint. A lot of the Western states are subject to it. There's been all sorts of kind of debate over the decades about whether to split the Ninth Circuit, create a new Twelfth Circuit, things like that. You know, it's not at all clear why red states like Idaho should be subject to this horrific appellate tribunal. So anyway, Trump, to his great credit, did a lot to turn around the Ninth Circuit. We, conservatives never retook the Ninth Circuit, and there were some duds of nominees like Eric Miller up in Washington State, but through some other excellent nominees in Ninth Circuit, folks like Ken Lee down in Southern California, Trump was able to make some serious inroads. And Trump nominated to the Ninth Circuit an Oregonian named Ryan Bounds who had clerked for Judge O'Scanlan, a prolific conservative Ninth Circuit judge. He, he, he had a fantastic, fantastic resume. I mean, Stanford undergrad, Yale Law School, all, he, he had all of the T's crossed and the I's dots. He was a perfect Ninth Circuit nominee. Do you know who sunk Ryan Bounds' nomination, despite the fact that the Republicans had the votes? It was Tim Scott. It was Tim Scott who decided to harp on and on and on about the fact that when he was a college student at Stanford, Ryan Bounds had written a series of conservative columns for the right-leaning student newspaper, the Stanford Review, about Title IX and campus sexual assault, gender discrimination, and basically kind of just intersectionality and identity politics in general. And man, that seemed to rub Tim Scott the wrong way. Tim Scott ended up saying that he would not vote for this deeply important nominee to a deeply important court during President Trump's presidency because he was personally aggrieved by conservative writings the candidate had written in college. And, you know, my understanding, by the way, is that none of these writings were particularly crazy. I actually recall reading at the time some of them. I mean, these were fairly mainstream conservative opinions. I mean, sure, they touched on some kind of spicy subjects like race and gender, affirmative action, identity politics, things like that. So, you know, uh, yesterday I tweeted out after Tim Scott announced, I said, you know, I have two words to say about Tim Scott's bid for the presidency. Ryan Bounds. If you don't remember, Google it. And man, was this a spicy quote tweet from the Stanford Review. This is the account for the conservative newspaper out at Stanford for which for or for whom Ryan Bounds had written those conservative columns in college. So the, the Stanford Review quoted my tweet and said, quote, Scott, this is Tim Scott. Scott tanked Ryan Bounds' nomination to the Ninth Circuit because Bounds spoke out against the left's worst impulses in the review, in the Stanford Review. And then the Stanford Review tweeted, quote, Tim Scott is a disgrace to his party and his country. So that's coming from the Stanford Review. That's not coming from my mouth, but I, I, I have to say I'm at least sympathetic to the sentiment. I mean, that was completely and utterly inexcusable from Tim Squat, utterly disqualifying, shows that he has kind of an inner kind of not woke, but at least woke adjacent card within him. He ended up convincing Marco Rubio of Florida shamefully that he would, or, or, or that he basically convinced Rubio that that was the right thing to do was to oppose Bounds' nomination. And they took down Ryan Bounds. So just awful, awful stuff from Tim Scott. Again, the guy is basically a, a uniparty vote through and through when it comes to issues like the Ukraine war. You know, don't believe him when he says that he is tough on, on immigration. I'm, I'm sure that he is kind of a zombie kind of three cheers for capitalism, market fundamentalist when it comes to kind of basic issues of political economy and taxation, things like that. I certainly have no grounds with which to question his personal religious beliefs or perhaps his personal social conservatism. But again, he is simply not the kind of guy who has any kind of conception of the use of state power who would be able to make meaningful inroads in actually implementing those personally held conservative views. So ultimately, what really is the point of those personally held views? So Tim Scott is in. John Thune, the number two Republican in the Senate, 
from uh, South Dakota, longtime establishment figure, immediately lined up behind Tim Scott, which is interesting. The fact that someone of that uh, stature within the Republican Party would immediately glom on to Tim Scott, uh, as opposed to the former president, Donald Trump. But we will see where, where Tim Scott goes. And, you know, as we mentioned, again, he's not the only person who's running on this zombie Reaganite platform. I, I'm deliberately not saying running for Ronald Reagan's third term because I genuinely think that would be unfair to the Gipper, that that would be unfair to Ronald Reagan to describe Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, or Tim Scott as running for Ronald Reagan's third term because Ronald Reagan was actually a fantastic president and actually was a heck of a lot more nuanced when it comes to some of these issues that the zombie Reaganites seemed, and the boomer cons, I should say, seemed to think were so black and white for Ronald Reagan. So when it, come, you know, when it came to issues like political economy, you know, Ronald Reagan, of course, was the guy who slapped tariffs on Japan for the automobile industry, which was disproportionately responsible for getting a, a lot of automobile manufacturing in the U.S. South across states like Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina. And even when it came, when it came to foreign policy, a lot of people have this misconception that Ronald Reagan was a saber-rattling war hawk. I mean, what happened in Grenada was fine, but it's a tiny, tiny country. And, you know, Ronald Reagan's not starting new wars. He did not start any new wars abroad. On the contrary... He ended the Cold War. Um, I, I'm not going to go ahead and tell you that that he was some sort of great dove and peace neck because that would also be historically inaccurate. But again, this this conception that some of the zombie Reaganites, some some folks like Tim Scott, and Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, perhaps above all else, tend to have about Reagan that he was some sort of doctrinaire libertarian when it comes to political economy and some sort of saber-rattling neoconservative when it comes to foreign policy uh, simply just simply just not accurate, to be honest with you. But nonetheless, Nikki Haley and Mike Pence are very much running for, for that same lane. And, and, you know, it's no coincidence that Mike Pence and Nikki Haley have both come out absolutely swinging in recent weeks against what Governor Ron DeSantis has done here in Florida. Ron DeSantis, of course, is not formally a candidate yet. We'll, we'll get to him in a little bit, but if you recall, Ron DeSantis has been in this ongoing battle with the Walt Disney Company, and it started a while ago. It started back in March of 2022. We've talked about that on this show many, many times. I focus on that issue so much because I think it is kind of the perfect example of understanding what time it is in America. That is really why I focus on that issue. It, it, it is shining a spotlight on the idea that there is has been a collapse of any distinction between the public sector and the private sector that private companies are increasingly dominated by culturally woke forces that wield quasi-public power in their attempt to kind of uh, influence the body politic and, and spread their poison all across the country. When we had Arthur Millick of the Claremont Institute on recently, we talked about that with Arthur quite a bit, that exact idea in the context of Black Lives Matter. And fundamentally, again, when it comes to kind of the the perils of corporate power and the ever-lurking prospect of corporate tyranny. I, I think Ron DeSantis' battle with the Walt Disney Company shines a helpful spotlight on that, and it is a fundamentally just and righteous battle that the governor has been, has been fighting. Nonetheless, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, the former Trump-era U.S. ambassador to the U.N., you know, she has been criticizing Ron DeSantis. She, 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 she has even told Bob Iger, the former and once again current CEO of the Walt Disney Company, she has said to, to, to Bob Iger, you know, if you, if you want to pick up your amusement park and all your assets in Florida, we'll be happy to have you in South Carolina. I mean, give me a break, right? I mean, as if the Walt Disney Company, which has thousands and thousands of acres of property there, in the Orlando area can possibly pick up its assets. I, I mean, an utterly ludicrous suggestion. Mike Pence has had very similar comments. He has he has criticized Ron DeSantis on the most vapid right liberal of all vapid right liberal grounds, because how can you be a conservative and tell a private company what they can and cannot do? Again, just, just a total fundamental philosophical misunderstanding of the role the corporations play in a sovereign republic. So going back to the English common law, literally going back three, four, five hundred years, corporations were chartered by the sovereign, by the king in in Britain or by we the people here in the United States. Corporations were and are chartered by the sovereign, ultimately with a societal or civilizational fiduciary duty of sorts to promote the common good. And fundamentally, 
these corporations are subservient to the power of the sovereign. So because of that, in the United States, we the people who are sovereign, that's what the preamble of the Constitution tells us, we have a duty and an obligation to treat corporations such that they behave in accordance with their higher duty to the common good of the people. The Walt Disney Company, Nike, I mean, so many of these companies, Bud Light, we talk about them a lot. So many of these companies have been openly and flagrantly violating this higher societal or civilizational fiduciary duty of violating their promise of being chartered to help pursue and promote the common good of the polity. DeSantis' fight against the Walt Disney Company is a just and righteous cause. It simply is. You know, as we've said on this show, again, to kind of go back to zombie Reaganism, you know, Reagan himself famously said that the scariest words in the English language are, quote, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And those words were true when Ronald Reagan said it. That was an accurate statement at that time with tax rates as high as they were with regulation as horrible as they so often were in various industries at that time there. Not the case anymore. Is big government still a problem? Yeah, for sure, in, in, in many respects. I mean, we saw this all too well during COVID, of course. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. Anyone who lived through COVID saw that. But the biggest problem of all is this de-civilizational mantra, this civilizational arson toxic poison of the woke ideology that spreads throughout all the institutions the administrative state and the government for sure but also corporate america also higher education all of them none of them are immune and fundamentally in kind of alexander hamilton teddy roosevelt style fashion old school both lowercase and in the case of teddy roosevelt capital r republican fashion it is incumbent upon Duly elected officials acting on behalf of the sovereign, we the people, to hold in line those actors, both inside and outside the government, that violate their fundamental duty to the general welfare and the common good of the whole. So, again, this criticism of DeSantis' fight against Disney from folks like Pence and Haley is just... Is, is just totally, totally wildly off base. You know, let's quickly kind of just go ahead and talk about some of the other candidates in, in this race. So Vivek Ramaswamy is in the race. I, I absolutely cannot stand Vivek Ramaswamy. Those of you who follow me on Twitter know that I feel that way. I think that this guy is a deeply, deeply dishonest, unctuous used car salesman running for president of the United States. He is a, he's a legitimate egomaniac. I mean, someone who once had a George Soros fellowship, someone who once bragged about the fact that he was so prolific and invested in China when it comes to Chinese Communist Party-backed private equity funds, and now he's supposed to be this great China hawk. Uh, literally, like, literally, where did Vivek Ramaswamy came from? I mean, like, who is he paying to get all of these media appearances? He, he just decided one day that he wanted to be a public figure and started paying lots of bookers. I mean, I don't know if that's kind of how it looks to me, to be honest with you, but fundamentally, he is deeply, deeply untrustworthy. By the way, you have to say, his criticisms of kind of the COVID regime, Operation Warp Speed, things like that, um, a, a little tepid. Not sure that I've seen a whole lot on that front. Might have something to do with the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy himself is is a product, in many ways, of big pharma. He, to his credit, of course, he ha he has created. Roy Vant. He created a company that he has long since primarily gotten out of. That company, incidentally, is not doing super hot financially. But anyway, I, you know, if you are the kind of Republican voter who wants to vote for Vivek Ramaswamy or who is even considering voting for Vivek Ramaswamy, I've, you know, I've got some oceanfront property to sell you in Idaho because that appears to be the kind of gullible person that you are. You know, a friend of mine who I will not name pointed out to me, he kind of did a deep dive on the Wikipedia edit page history of Vivek Ramaswamy's Wikipedia a few months ago around the time that he was formally announcing for president, which I believe he did on Tucker Carlson's show, if I'm not mistaken there. And, you know, it had turned out that Vivek Ramaswamy had edited out of his Wikipedia page any mention, if I recall, of his Soros Fellowship. And here's the most interesting part, perhaps, of all. He had actually edited his religion. So, he is Hindu by birth, 
And last I checked, and last this person who sent me his Wikipedia page edits came, he had edited out his religion. And why? Well, the answer to this is obvious. I mean, he he would like to make a play in heavily Christian, conservative Iowa, states like that. But but to go ahead and actually edit out your religion from your Wikipedia page, very odd behavior, no? I, I mean, shouldn't you kind of just, just own it? Or, or what religion is he? I mean, I mean, does he profess currently to be a Christian? I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I genuinely just have no idea. I, I, th- I, think, I think the guy is a fraud absolute through and through. I have had some profoundly unpleasant personal experiences with him. I think that he is a total jerk with no sense of manners or grace whatsoever. Again, one of the biggest egos of any person I have ever met in my entire life. That is Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, also appears to be running as a Trump plant. It is worth pointing out there. I have no idea what kind of deal, if any, he has signed with the Trump operation. But why in the world has he really never said a negative thing about Donald Trump? All he does is get up there and bash Ron DeSantis. I mean, he had, this guy has the chutzpah to say that Ron DeSantis has somehow stolen his ideas about wokeism or ESG or DI. I mean, dude, give me a break. Ron DeSantis was a card-carrying right-winger around the time that you were getting your George Soros Fellowship to graduate school. So with all due respect, shut the hell up and find your place, Vivek Ramaswamy. So, you know, moving on to some of the other candidates here, you know, Larry Elder, the California-based radio host, is in this race. Larry is a very nice guy. I, I have no idea why he is, is doing this, to be honest with you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me other than maybe to sell books. I, I I genuinely am just kind of baffled by it. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, is apparently going to get in. Who the hell knows why? I mean, that guy missed his calling card back in 2012. By the time he tried in 2016, it was already way too late, although, although he did have that knockout blow to Marco Rubio in, in that infamous debate in New Hampshire, if, if you recall, in 2016. Asa Hutchinson, for God's sake, what are you doing in this race? The former governor of, of Arkansas, is in here polling around 1.1% in the real clear politics average. That would be the same Asa Hutchinson who opposed the state of Arkansas's full throttle ban on kitty chemical castration, gender mutilation. And, you know, in one of my all-time favorite exchanges on the erstwhile Tucker Carlson Tonight program on Fox News, Tucker had Asa on. And it was it was a laugh out loud way to open an interview. Tucker, who, of course, opposed Asa's veto of this legislation, had Asa Hutchinson on. And I'm kind of just paraphrasing here. He goes, Governor, thanks for joining us tonight. You've come out as pro-choice on the issue of chemical castration for children. Why is that? And Asa's answer was, I mean, you literally could not come up with a more stereotypical set of bumper sticker boomer con platitudes it was like ronald reagan and william f buckley talked about limited government and i don't believe in getting between a doctor and the patients telling them what it is good medicine was bad medicine i, I mean it was such trash I, I mean does asa hutchinson think that william f buckley and ronald reagan would have supported a 12-year-old girl's quote-unquote choice to chop off her perfectly healthy breasts? Are you kidding me right now? Anyway, he is just a total freaking non-factor. Again, no clue why half these people are running here. And obviously, the more people that are running, the better it goes for the big guy at Mar-a-Lago. We, we know how that works by now. So, you know, if you are a donor, if, if you are a donor figure your your net worth is high enough where, where you where you have serious cash to throw around here as, as as a donor for some campaign super PACs whatnot and you were supporting anyone other than trump and DeSantis before we even get into that potential mano a mano what the hell are you doing like, like like seriously like what are you actually doing wasting your money if you are a donor to someone like a Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, uh, whoever, any, any, any of these clowns. I, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. It just makes no sense. Now, Mike Pence, of course, has not formally announced yet. It, he shows all signs of, of wanting to, to get into this fight. You know, one kind of codicil to the Mike Pence stuff 
it's true that he has come out swinging against DeSantis on Disney. He's taken this very kind of zombie Reaganite doctrinaire libertarian line when it comes to political economy and politicians telling businesses, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's worth pointing out this is not the first time that Mike Pence appears to be ready, willing, able, and eager to capitulate, to bend the knee to woke corporate pressure. You know, I remember vividly in 2015 when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana. I was during law school at the time. I remember it so vividly. I was in law school in Chicago. He was the governor of the state next door in Indiana. And Indiana had a big debate at that time about a state-level RIFRA law. That would be, of course, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This was 2015. It was in the build-up to the Obergefell case that constitutionalized same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court, which would happen later that summer in June. And the corporate pushback to Indiana's trying to pass this very commonsensical protection of religious liberty was profound and immense. And Mike Pence, who touts himself as his great social conservative lawyer who talks all the time about his Christian faith, who famously has the Pence rule when it comes to his individual meetings with women who are not his wife, Karen, you know, he folded like a cheap suit to the Chamber of Commerce, to the business lobby when it came to the RIFRA debate back when he was governor in 2015. Some social conservative intellectuals, folks like Robbie George of Princeton, have never forgotten that to their great credit. It is something that should not be forgotten because it was very bad. It was a total lack of spine, a, a total demonstration of cowardice. And, you know, when you show your true self, when you reveal your true hand, believe it. When someone shows you who they really are, you ought to believe it. And that's exactly what Mike Pence did when it came to the RIFRA fight in the year 2015. And I, you know, for that reason, I certainly cannot say that I am particularly surprised when it comes to his adamant stance against Ron DeSantis smacking down the Walt Disney Company just a little bit. Okay, so with all of these jokers, probably at least half of whom will not make it to the first in the nation Iowa caucuses out of the way. That then takes us to Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. So Trump currently has a massive lead in the real clear politics average of the national race for 2024, considerably bigger than it was at the end of 2022, at the end of last year, around the time that Governor DeSantis was riding high on his 19 and a half point destruction of the field here in the Sunshine State, where Republicans have got in every single cabinet level position for the first time since Reconstruction. They have super majorities in both houses of the legislature. So his, his standing nationally has slipped a little bit for the pri primarily for the very simple reason that Trump has been formally running since November. He had that thoroughly underwhelming speech in Mar-a-Lago last November. Ron DeSantis has thus far still, as the time we were recording this, that probably will be changing imminently. But thus far, still has not announced his 2024 presidential candidacy. He did just preside over maybe the most prolific state legislative session that I've ever witnessed as a political observer. I mean, I wouldn't even know where, like, where to begin to begin describing all the incredible laws that Florida just passed in this sprint of a session here in 2023. When it comes to abortion, guns, illegal immigration, uh, critical race theory, wokeism, of course, the new college of Florida stuff, uh, transgender pronouns in schools, transgender bathrooms, uh, massive tax cuts. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to stop, but th this was such a prolific session. And up until this point, Ron DeSantis has been primarily focused on that. Very interesting, by the way, that Donald Trump on the abortion issue that I mentioned, has actually staked a position well, well to the left of Ron DeSantis on this particular issue. So Florida this session staked out a six-week state-level abortion ban with certain dispensations for rape and incest up until a later point, assuming that you can show a police report or something like that. You need actual evidence of that. But it's basically a six-week ban. And why six weeks? Well, because six weeks is around the time that embryologists and OBGYN doctors tell us that we can detect a fetal heartbeat. And the extremely straightforward argument, one that I very much buy into as an adamant pro-lifer, is that if you can detect a beating heart in the unborn child, I, I mean, hold aside it just for the time being, the, the argument, which I also subscribe to, 
that life beginning at fertilization is inherently full of moral dignity and worth and should not be discarded. But at a bare minimum, I think it is fully, fully appropriate to proscribe the willful termination of the life of a very, very tiny human being that has a beating heart. Nonetheless, Donald Trump came out and he said that what Florida did was too harsh. Um, well, not really. The vast majority of even self-described pro-lifers support that legislation. You know, curious play in Iowa, by the way, where the very po- the extremely popular governor there, Kim Reynolds, who we might say is the Ron DeSantis of the upper Midwest, you know, she also won a massive re-election fight. She has really transformed the state of Iowa, very similar to the way that Ron DeSantis has transformed Florida from a purple to a red state. Kim Reynolds has really done much the same in Iowa, she signed a six-week abortion ban. Didn't hurt her. Greg Abbott in Texas, same thing. Brian Kemp in Georgia, same thing. Mike DeWine in Ohio, same thing. Yeah, Mike DeWine signed a six-week fetal heartbeat protection bill and won by 20-something points. So, you know, with, with all due respect to some of my friends on the right side of the aisle, folks you know, folks uh, like uh, the the great syndicated columnist and former host on this program, Ann Coulter, who who was a who was a genuine friend. I, I really think the world of Ann, but I I just do not agree with her on this issue. Ann has referred to the six week abortion ban in Florida as you know she's kind of jokingly referred to it as the Republican assisted suicide act. Again, Ann, I love you, but I but no, just no. I I mean there is simply no evidence for this at all. But so. Very interesting that Trump has kind of staked out a lefty position of DeSantis on that issue. Not the only issue that he has staked out a position well to the left of Ron DeSantis on. We talked about the Bud Light culture war pertaining to the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. We've gone over that already in a previous episode. It's worth recalling that, you know, Donald Trump and also his son, Donald Trump Jr., after the Anheuser-Busch InBev stock started tanking, came out and said, Enough is enough. They've learned their lesson. Call off the dogs, conservatives. Why, why, why? And, you know, lots of speculation as to why that is. Is it kind of a a business decision pertaining to the Trump organization? Do they have some sort of deal with Anheuser-Busch? Is it as simple as the fact that Anheuser-Busch InBev does seem to donate to right-leaning causes disproportionately a little more so than most corporations? I don't know. Neither here nor there. But nonetheless, Trump did come out well to the left of Ron DeSantis on that particular issue. Um, Any number of of other issues seemingly as well there. Here's the basic lay of the land here. Trump has this massive lead nationally. Again, DeSantis is not even formally in the race yet. Ron DeSantis actually has a lot more cash on hand than Donald Trump does. If you include a state-level entity that he recently had to kind of give up the reins of power on when you include... The DeSantis-aligned super PAC, Never Back Down, that has a lot of cash as well. The whole DeSantis operation, as of right now, has more cash on hand than Trump. And, you know, former mega-Trump donors seem to be gravitating towards DeSantis increasingly in somewhat rapid-fire fashion. So Hal Lambert is the most recent Republican mega-donor to do so. Any number of former massive Trump donors have shifted to Sanders as well. You know, Trump obviously still has some of his donors, but it's, but but it really does seem to be dramatically fewer than it was in 2016. When it comes to endorsements, Trump has way more endorsements right now when it comes to congressmen, when it comes to governors. I assume that those numbers will start to pick up dramatically for Ron DeSantis once he is formally in the race. Looking at the early states, though, the Never Back Down Pack, which is the pro Ron Sand Super Pack, a couple of Fridays ago announced a, a deeply impressive haul of like, I think it was 37 state legislators in Iowa, including the leaders of both chambers who were coming out for Ron DeSantis. And a, a very impressive number as well, state leg- legislators in New Hampshire. The, the number of Republican state legislators in Florida is almost unanimous, by the way. It's like 99 or something like that. Again, including the leaders of both the Florida State House and Florida State Senate. It's literally only one who has endorsed Trump. 99 to one, if I I had the numbers right there. And generally speaking, the endorsements will, you know, will will start to catch up fairly quickly. I, I have very little doubt about that. It does seem to me that 
DeSantis's easiest path forward is to make a strong play in Iowa. So Kim Reynolds, the aforementioned governor there, she's probably not going to endorse there. There was a bit of a history of Iowa governors staying neutral in the lead up to the caucuses. I believe Terry Branstad, who was the governor there seemingly forever. I, I don't recall him kind of explicitly getting uh, in the endorsement game. Having said that, it is not a very well-kept secret that, that Kim Reynolds is very fond of Ron DeSantis. The two have an excellent relationship, and all signs certainly indicate that Kim Reynolds would privately would privately very much prefer Ron DeSantis. And in, in that sense, she is kind of to Ron DeSantis what Christy Noem in South Dakota is to Donald Trump. She is kind of a crypto or pseudo DeSantis supporter there. So I think that Ron DeSantis's best path forward does does go through Iowa, which, you know, especially in the aftermath of Trump coming out opposed to federal abortion legislation, coming out as opposed to Florida's six-week abortion ban, you know, that door is wide open right now. That door is absolutely wide open right now, and it's doubly wide open. You know, again, just thinking of a couple weeks ago, Ron DeSantis was out there, you know, flipping burgers at Randy Feenstra's picnic, and then he had this impromptu event in, in Des Moines, Iowa, the same day that Trump canceled his trip to do a rally in Des Moines because of severe weather, which, by the way, is total nonsense. Okay, I multiple friends of mine who live in Des Moines sent photos to me of them outdoors that day, one of whom is a good buddy of mine, to send a photo of him drinking beer on a patio of a bar. The same day that Donald Trump canceled his trip out there. So that is total nonsense there. I mean, we'll see if Bob Vanderplatz, who is kind of an influential evangelical leader in Iowa, we'll see if he gets into the endorsement business. Definitely seems that he has heavily soured on Donald Trump based on his tweets after Trump going pretty far to the left on the abortion issue. We'll see if he formally endorsed DeSantis. I think he definitely might at least. But I, I think the path for DeSantis does go does go through Iowa. No doubt about that. And New Hampshire as well. The the polling in New Hampshire right now is considerably tighter than the national polling. So uh, if DeSantis were to win Iowa, you have to think he's in he's in pretty decent shape then in New Hampshire by in that momentum there. And then look, the elephant in the room are Trump's legal dramas. So he's been indicted by Alvin Bragg in New York City on completely meritless grounds. We've discussed that on this show as well. He but he also he also is currently under investigation by special counsel Jack Smith when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago classified documents, when it comes to January 6th, which the kangaroo court from Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger from the January 6th committee has recommended that Donald Trump be indicted for incitement, insurrection, whatever the hell stupid charge they said that he should be indicted for when it comes to January 6th. And then you have this investigation in Georgia as well, pertaining to that quote-unquote perfect phone call or two phone calls that Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in the aftermath of the 2020 election, which I personally think shows all the signs of possibly being a killer for Donald Trump. If I were him, that that is the indictment that I would be potentially most worried about. So what, what's going to happen if he's actually under indictment in multiple jurisdictions? The fundraising in Mar-a-Lago is already not quite what they would like it to be. What if it starts drying up even more? Who knows? I mean, that is kind of the X factor here of all X factors. Really, really, really not sure exactly which way that plays out. But at the end of the day, as we kind of bring it to a close here, at the end of the day, the fundamental question that 2024 Republican presidential primary voters want, including, by the way, new right kind of national conservative NACON oriented voters. So if you are the latter as well, the fundamental question that I think you have to ask yourself, do you want four more years of the Trump show or not? If the answer is yes, you have your guy. If the answer is no, then you should vote for the only person with a chance of actually draining the swamp, the only person with a chance of actually gutting the administrative state, of actually doing something about the rot in the, in the intelligence community, in the national security apparatus, the only person with a chance of actually building the wall. And that, of course, would be 
the person in this race who best understands what time it is when it comes to public policy and the wielding of political power within the confines of the rule of law to reward friends and promote virtue and to punish enemies and punish evil. And that, of course, is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who shows all signs of getting into this race formally in the not-so-distant future. But that really, that really fundamentally is the question that you have to ask. If you want four more years of the Trump show, you got your guy. He's eligible for one term. There you go. But if you are primarily concerned with the issues, the forward-facing, forward-looking issues, and boy, are there a lot of them, (laughs) then I would suggest you should consider someone other than the guy who seemingly can't stop talking about the stolen 2020 election, January 6th, and stuff like that. Anyway, this is going to be super, super fun as this thing kicks into high gear. We will have lots and lots of updates for you, no doubt about that. Again, that DeSantis presidential announcement has to be imminent at this point. I would be shocked if it is not. We hope you enjoy this kind of running through of some of the candidates and and, and their strengths, weaknesses, and, and so forth there. Once again, if you're not subscribing to The Josh Hammer Show, please do go ahead and do so on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us that five-star rating. Give us a nice, big, fat review. Give us the comments as well. We really do value it. We value your feedback. This is an audience-driven show. We're doing it for you, the listener. Go ahead and leave us your comments there. We look forward to that feedback very much, and we look forward to seeing you next week. So until then, I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.